Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Good. Um, good morning. I'm going to say good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good middle of the night because... I got home at two o'clock in the morning. Ah, you got your coffee cup. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got to two o'clock in the morning from uh, visiting my son and his uh, uh, my granddaughter and his his girlfriend Haley and their family. Uh, I went with my ex wife and I, and we met and we played grandparent for four days, and it was. Sweet. Delicious. It was totally delicious. She's so cute. And everybody says that, but she almost never cries. And she's always like, she's at the point now, she's seven and a half months and she's smiling. And, you know, she sort of, she loves her Saba. That's my name for grandpa. And she loves my beard. So she's, she's grabbed. We had to clip her nails because she was, she was cutting my face, but she's so cute. I've just said, I miss her. I'm, I'm, I've been home now for about eight hours and I'm just missing her already. And so I, yeah, but that was, that was the great. So it was, a, I got home in the middle of the night and um, it was, it was cold here because I had the heat shut down or down to 64 and, and it was snowing. When I got mm. last night. So I had to drive home and with one eye in the snow. Just oh, <laughs> in the dark. <laughs> oh, well. But I'm here. I made it. So uh, that's, Talk about that's, risky. All, that's, that's my week. I, I didn't really have anything else to add to that week. Uh, oh, one other thing. I, I, I do have a <laughs> uh, sort of a, a, a person living here part to, most of the time now, which is great. So now when I go away, I don't have to find somebody to watch the cat and make sure the plumbing's working and all that other stuff, because I've got somebody who's staying here, friend of a friend who's here and she needed a place to stay. And my house is really big, as you know. And yeah. so this we're, we're working out some sort of bartering system and stuff like that. So it's going to be great uh, for when I go away. And especially if I go away like weeks at a time coming up in the, you know, in the next several months. So I'm, ha- I'm really happy about that. And, uh, Yep, that's it. I know that the <laughs> West Coast, you guys got slammed, uh, to- um, to- totally slammed. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think in some ways they make it a bigger deal than it actually is, especially here in Santa Barbara. They had, um, there's a adjacent town called Montecito, which is kind of the wealthier part of town. It's like where the Prince and Oprah and everybody live. Um, they had a mudslide a few years ago that there were um, some people died. And you can feel it when it starts to rain here. There's like a, there's like a communal PTSD and they even shut the schools down and there, and it was rain, you know, but um, it was really nice because I, I have mentioned a couple of times that I had a very long, hard week last week. And um, so I just stayed inside of the house and had all the food that I needed and uh, made fires nonstop and watched the rain outside and didn't get in my car and, it was lovely. Um, so yeah, I yeah, this looked this looked a little more serious than 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 the media. I mean, this one the media wasn't probably playing it up too much. I mean, I've seen scenes of San Diego, and I 
I saw pictures of the LA River right where I used to live in uh, in in Studio City, or more. Yeah, I guess it was in Studio City, and and um, the the basin was almost filled completely to the top. It was really amazing because usually it's just a little trickle of water down the center. Yeah. But I do remember what the media does sometimes because when my mom was still alive, we had an earthquake in Whittier, California. It was like a 4.8 or something like that. And it, it made the news and the national news. And my mom calls me because she'd seen a video where they showed some potato chips that had fallen off the shelf in a, in a convenience food store. <laughs> You're like, nope, I'm okay. <laughs> yeah, the potato chips were even okay. So, uh, yeah, the media does tend to play stuff up, but that's just the way it goes. So, yeah. what's, so I'm, just uh, recover I'm just recovering and uh, I have one birth coming up this month which i knew i had i had a very full schedule last month but this month is not much actually this whole spring is not much so i'm actually getting ready to plan my hip replacement surgery <laughs> that's good times that's what i'll be doing on my break well yeah I, and today our guests are um a return guest that's lindsay Milas. a lot of our listeners know who she is She's a midwife in Orange County, an extraordinary, and she's a, she's a friend and mentor of yours. And, mm -hmm. and then we're going to bring on um, Gina. Um, if she wants to use her last name, I'll let her decide if she wants to say her last name. Gina is a mom that's a type 1 diabetic, and she's had two home births. First one was with me and Lindsay, and the second one was with me as sort of consultant, but with Lindsay uh, doing it because I'm no longer in California, and she's going to talk about that. And we're going to talk a little bit about we've been I've been getting lots of letters about diabetes and pregnancy and glucose testing and pregnancy and and what's the big deal and all that stuff. So they've got a lot of information. Gina has done a deep dive into this sort of thing. I mean, she's like she's an expert, even though she's a mom. She is an expert on this, and she can quote some numbers for us. I wanted to, I, uh, so that's where we're going to go first, and then our Patreon today. Uh, is going to be, uh, uh, we're going to talk about time and how we use it and what's its value. And I've got a couple of examples, and then I have a very sweet story to read from a book that I, that a friend of mine's father wrote 50, 40 years ago uh, about um, my urban wilderness in the Hollywood Hills. And I get choked up about it because I knew him He's since passed. But, um, and then to how we, how we sort of misvalue, don't value, overvalue our time. And I want to talk about that. So that'll be our Patreon today. Okay, great. I'm okay. looking forward to it. So I thought I'd start by reading one letter before they come on. And then there may be one or two letters I'll read with them on. And I'm just trying to figure out which one to read. But I think I'll just read this one because it kind of ties in. This is from Erica in Finland. And I love that. You know how I love getting letters from other places. We, we love that. Well, we do. Yes. Right. Yeah. We. It's always we. <laughs> when I say I, it means we. Well, sometimes yeah. it is just you. <laughs> yes. And when you say and when you say I, it's just you. Okay. <laughs> that's how it works. That's a guy's, you know, that's the bur that's a burden that we carry. So, okay. Um, this is the subject is diabetes type one, pregnancy and ultrasound. She says, hi, I'm currently pregnant with my second child at week 11. I have had 18 years being a diabetic and no complications. But by the way, she her English is a little bit like Yoda. She speaks the uh, 
the 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 verb before the the noun or whatever how it works or the other way around in my first pregnancy as you would guess was full of tests and interventions which i already knew were unnecessary but i had a hard time keeping my center so i let the interventions happen this time i have a new hopefully better birthing hospital i'm also planning a home birth i have a home mid home home midwife with me but i wanted to sign into a hospital care just in case we need it okay I have listened to many of your podcasts. I've read a lot of studies about risks and interventions. There are a lot of answers I've gotten from your podcast, but still some holes of information I would want to fill. There is very little information about type 1 diabetes in pregnancy, and I was wondering, could you a, a bit more elaborate about examples of scans, what scans may be good? And by the way, I just want to mention that we have a couple of podcasts out there. We have podcasts. Number 229, which is on diabetes, which is called Stop the Sugar Coating. And then we have podcast 268, where we had Lindsay on as a guest. So people can go back to those as well. The hospital wants to offer me the 12-week ultrasound for chromosomal anomalies. I read the statistics and decided to decline the ultrasound. But then they said they need to know if there's two, like twins. Mm -hmm. All right. So she asks, does it make a difference that we know that twins before week 20? And they said yes, which is true technically if she has monodi twins. But the first of all, the, doing an ultrasound to rule out twins in every woman means you're doing 97 ultrasounds that you don't need to catch three people that might have twins. I asked the likelihood of being a twin birth was a specific placenta problem that the midwife mentioned, which I think is TTTS. So she's now talking about 15% of the 20% of twins that are mono die. So we're talking about a really small number of twins. And she says she doesn't know. The doctor doesn't know. And, well, and thought, Stu, why, why would you need to know before 20 weeks? Is there something well, you would do to can the start as early as 14 weeks or so that you can start to see evidence of TTTS. So you would do that kind of um, surgery that we've talked about? Early, if it got if it got early? to be really severe, you would do the the laparoscopic laser surgery before um, twenty weeks. Yeah, you do it if it went. You you do it at a certain stage when when it, when baby the babies are both or potentially one of them is is in dire straits, and that can happen before twenty weeks. Okay. So yes, okay. Okay. Um, I found out that the twin birth risk is one point five percent. I'm not sure what she's talking about, and there would be a specific placental problem, of course, more unlikely. So I'm thinking of declining the scan. I am hoping to have as little interventions as possible. My last pregnancy was totally perfect and with no complications, other than hospitals' demand to induce me at 38 weeks and the stress of ultrasounds, which were being done every two to four weeks the whole pregnancy because she's diabetic. Mm -hmm. I am thinking of doing just the 20-week scan and maybe one or two more. Do you have advice? When would be good to do ultrasounds in the third trimester? What do you think, Bliss? <laughs> um, um, it, it, she's working with a midwife? Or she doesn't say. Well, she's with, with a midwife and a hospital birth just in case. Remember, she said mm -hmm. that she would do that just yeah. in case. Um, I don't see any reason unless we are palpating and find that the baby is not growing the way that we would expect to feel um, that we would need additional ultrasounds um, to manage that pregnancy. Right. Or grow, or growing too much. Right. That too, too. The other yeah, thing I just said how we didn't expect. So it could be under or over. Yeah, correct. 
The other thing I tried to find is the information in your podcast, but couldn't find is information about the umbilical artery flow, ductus venosus, middle cerebral artery, pulsatility index, middle, you know, that sort of thing. And what are these? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> we did a whole podcast on that. So you guys can look back, look that up. And by the way, on our Patreon now, if you sign up for our Patreon, we have a spreadsheet that has the Holy uh, Grail. Yeah. Raquel did a good job. Yeah, it's not just it's not just the uh, topic names. It's like anything that we talked about during that. Because, you know, we can kind of jump around sometimes. We don't just talk about the topic. So you can find out any time that we talked about a certain subject. So, yeah, it's awesome. She, she says, what is the use of checking these every month? And the, the answer to, I would give her is that in the medicalized model, there are articles that probably support doing it. But I'm not sure that those articles are the only way of doing something, but that is the way the medical model will do it. And I won't go into that anymore because we talked about the reasons behind that in the color Doppler uh, podcast. I'm sorry the translation can be wrong. I hope you understand what I'm talking about. In the last pregnancy, it said at 38 weeks and five days that the flow resistance of the middle cerebral artery was slightly reduced. If people can't see me, you can only hear me. I'm making a, a a jaw-dropping face like what does slightly reduced mean mm. it's a mean mm. it means that we can do another color doppler flow on you in two or three days that's what it means <laughs> okay um here comes the coercion and bullying part of the letter they forced me to come almost every day to cardiogram after i declined the induction at 38 weeks i managed to push it to 39 weeks in four days it was really stressful there wasn't any medical indication for interventions, but they started to threaten and shout at me that I'm killing my baby. Mm -hmm. Finally, at 39 weeks and four days in the cardiogram, they said, if we don't do the induction today, then I will not be allowed to birth in the hospital, but they will force a cesarean section. So I agreed to the induction. There wasn't any time of medical indication. Again, that's her English. Um, the estimated fetal weight was 3,737 grams. They said the baby will be over four kilograms next week. All right. Babies grow about an ounce a day. So that's about 30. That's probably not correct, but okay. Even if it was, so what? Nine pounds. What's four? Grams? Four is uh, eight or 814. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, also, they said the placenta can stop working at any time. <laughs> Ticking time bomb. And cause a stillbirth. So that's why they want to endorse early with diabetes. I mean, how many letters do I read that, that somebody says the placenta can stop working at any time? Yeah. Okay. The induction failed intervention after invention. So finally, I birthed at 39 weeks and six days by cesarean section, a perfectly healthy 3,685 gram. Boy, they weren't far off, but certainly that's an eight pound baby. Without shoulder dystocia or macrosomia, the heart rate tracing was was every time normal. It would be really nice if you could address these umbilical artery flow, ductus venosus, et cetera, the actual statistics of how useful it is to check these every two to four weeks in the pregnancy. Does it actually prevent stillbirth or something? And I would just I just wrote, you know, mentioned wrote a note to myself. I said, I'm sure that there are papers that say so. All right. But we all know about science these days, and science is often skewed to prove what they want it to prove and, no, and nothing else. And it's really hard to know anymore whether science is good or science isn't good. I am a 
Diabetic One Home Birth Community. I'm in a home birth community for diabetics, and I know there's a lot of Diabetic One women interested in these questions I'm asking. I hope you can make a podcast out of it. So that's what we're doing today. That's what we're doing today. You can use my story as an example. I'm sorry I can't afford to book a consultation for you, but I think this would also be a good podcast topic. Thank you for your work. God bless. And that's from Erica in Finland. God bless to you too, sweetheart. Yep. Thanks, Erica. Okay. So without further ado, um, let's bring Lindsay and Gina into the conversation. What do you think? Great. I'm excited to, um, to chat with you guys. Okay. Okay. Hi. Well, hello, beautiful ladies. Hello. <laughs> nice, nice to see you here. I know. I'm so excited <laughs> to be with you. And Gina, we haven't met, but I'm I'm delighted to have you on and hear your story. And Stu's told me so much about how you're just a wealth of knowledge in this arena. So I'm really excited to listen and share in uh, with our listeners to hear all that you have to offer to this conversation. Um, and I, Lindsay, haven't, and I you- haven't, wait, and I haven't seen Gina in like three years, I guess, three and a half years. Well, remember, Stu, what was her daughter, her first daughter's birthday? Oh, it was my birthday. Yeah, it was your birthday. We <laughs> got to spend right. your birthday yeah. That was uh, 2020, uh, July yeah. 21st, right. Yeah. Right, Carmen. I remember Carmen. Um, yeah, I do. I mean, I remember that birth really well, but yeah, yeah. right. But the other one, I, we don't know, but we're going to hear, we're going to hear all about it, but Blissy, go ahead, Bliss. I'm sorry. I cut you off. That's okay. Um, Lindsay, why don't you just quickly share, you've been on the podcast before people know who you are, but I think it would be good just in case you just tell people quickly who you are. Little yeah. bio. Yep. So I'm Lindsay Milis. I am a licensed midwife here in the state of California down in Southern California. Um, I have been in the birth world for 20 years now, and I've had my own home birth midwifery practice for 14 years coming up this year. Um, and I have, you know, seen all different varieties of birth. And I know I've been on the podcast before, so I don't want it to sound redundant, but um, I, you know, my life is encompassed by birth and, and all that I do. So, so here I am and, um, I'm so excited to be with Gina and I, I feel like I want to lead into her introduction because please, um, when I met Gina, I remember she sent me an email and it's, I, I have a very mi- a busy midwifery practice and I get to be really picky and choosy at choosing about who I let into my practice just because I have the ability to do so. And, um, it's rare that I take first time moms because usually I'm full with repeat clients. And so I have to feel very convicted and sometimes convinced in order to open up my practice to anyone that's outside of that repeat client. And I remember getting an email from Gina and um, she was like, I'm a type one diabetic, but I am a naturopathic doctor and I am an expert in diabetes and I want to have a home birth. And it's outside of our licensure within the state of California. And so at first I was like, oh, shoot, like, how is this going to happen? But this this beautiful woman was so convicted in what she wanted for her birth, what she wanted for her prenatal care. And I hands down will agree that most type one diabetics are experts in blood sugars. And so I just said, you know, I, I feel very convicted by your email. I want you to come in. Let me meet with you and your husband. Um, and they came into my office and it was like, without a question, we need to figure this out, which is when we enrolled Stu to be in care. So um, Gina was diagnosed with type one diabetes at 11. 
Um, at 12, just 12. a couple weeks before my 13th birthday. Okay. So over 21 years ago. Yeah. You just had your anniversary, if that's what yeah. you want to call Diversary. it. Diversary. Um, and, uh, she, she took care into her own hands as a teenager. Essentially, she had to real realize that, you know, managing her blood sugars was what was needed to stay alive essentially. Um, and that, that quest for knowing more brought her down the path of becoming a naturopathic doctor. And I'm going to let you explain a little bit about your journey into naturopathic medicine. Yeah. So naturopathic medicine, I mean, just sounded so cool to me when I was a, um, in my late teens, I would say I, I found Bastyr university and I saw their herbal sciences program. And I was like, wow, this is just a dream come true. Would love to learn about natural health and wellness. Ended up going there for my undergrad and heard about their midwifery program when I was there, but I really wanted to do the naturopathic medicine program. But that's where I sort of got introduced to midwifery care and just thought it was amazing, but never thought it was in the cards for me because when I was first diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, um, there's sort of, you know, you're scared about birth and being pregnant. There's a lot um that just creates this sort of like nervous tension when thinking about getting pregnant and having a successful vaginal birth. Um, and on top of that, I am the only woman in my family to have a vaginal birth. My mom told me my whole life that I was going to have to have a cesarean because her mother had both of her children via cesarean and my mom had three cesareans. And this was all because of a tipped uterus, which I come to find out is a retroverted uterus, which can be a complete, you know, incidental finding women, plenty of women go on to have natural vaginal births with that. So um, I just wanted to, you know, challenge all that and really prove to myself and other women with diabetes that this is definitely possible. Well, I, I love what you said. And, and, and. It's really interesting because I look back at the training that I had in the in the late 70s and early 80s and diabetes at that time was still called diabetes but it really was a different disease because we didn't have the kind of treatments that we had now and diabetic ketoacidosis which is where a diabetic is uh, out of control and their blood sugars are really high and they're starting to break down fat and it's a very serious condition is something that that in diabetics who are taken care of now you rarely see but we would see people in the ER in those days coming in pregnant with diabetic ketoacidosis. And the way we managed them was we would give them an IV and with normal saline and we would hang in uh, insulin and we would drip in insulin and we'd get their sugar down and we would be having to finger stick them like every diet, you know, way too often or more likely we would have to draw blood on them way too often because the finger sticks they couldn't bill for but labs going, uh, uh, glucose is going to the lab, they could. So we would be drawing blood sugars on them. Quite frankly, you didn't have monitors that were built into you. You didn't have, uh, you couldn't look at your phone and look at your, and know what your glucose is in real time. And so we were always lagging behind. We were always chasing our tail. And this is sort of, and then, and then of course the morbidities, which I want you to talk about in a minute, Gina, uh, were related to how poorly controlled you were and, and not necessarily just because you were diabetic. But we didn't know that back then because so every diabetic was treated the same way. Every diabetic uh, back in the 80s would have an amniocentesis at 37 weeks to check for fetal lung maturity. And then if the baby's lungs were mature, they would be brought in for an induction or a scheduled C-section, depending on their history. Every single one. And then every single baby born to an infant and a diabetic mother 
would be uh, the opposite of what should be done would be go would go to the nursery for observation. And they would take them in the, and they would feed them uh, formula or whatever else because their their blood sugars would naturally sort of bottom out if their mothers were poorly controlled in, when they were in labor. Uh, because the baby's uh, pancreas is working just fine. The baby's putting out a normal amount of insulin compared, and it's basing it on what mom's blood sugar is. And if mom's in poor control, then the baby's going to probably have problems. And so this is how it was always done. And even though the science behind diabetes has changed dramatically, the medical model hasn't. And the medical model still, the minute you find out you're pregnant, and we're not even talking about gestational diabetes, we're talking about type 1 diabetes. The minute a diabetic finds out she's pregnant, she is now labeled high risk. She's funneled down a path of all this extra testing, uh, color Doppler flow, which Bliss and I have a thing thing about, um, uh, growth scans, uh, fetal testing, uh, genetic issues, uh, anatomic issues, all these things that they're told that again are related when, to when the sugars are out of control or when, when your hemoglobin A1C is really high, meaning that you've been poorly controlled coming into pregnancy. And that's still the way they're treated now. And, the, and what happened for me when you contacted me, Lindsay and Gina, was that I had never, you know, I, I, I had done one diabetic at home already. And for the very same reason that I thought, well, listen, if she's really well controlled, then why can't she have the labor that she wants? Why does she have to go through all this, the amniocentesis and the induction and the and the baby to the NICU and the separation and all that stuff and have a hospital? Why can't she have a home birth? And if the home birth, if her sugars start to get out of whack in home birth, okay, and we can't control them, yeah, then she can go to the hospital. Or if the baby comes out and we can't manage that baby, um, if that baby shows signs of hypoglycemia and we can't manage that baby with, with, um, with latching and with a supplemental nursing system using donor milk, um, then that baby can go to the hospital. But why can't she have the home water birth that she's always wanted? Mm -hmm. And diabetics uh, throughout time have been denied these options. And they still are because the medical model still looks at you guys as something that is a problem. Of course, they look at every pregnancy that way. And we've talked about that many times on the podcast. Uh, but it's changed now. You have a monitor that you wear. You have an insulin pump that you wear. So you can look at your phone, you know what your blood sugar is, you can push a button and you can give yourself insulin and you can keep yourself in really good control. And if I remember correctly, well, I'll let you, I'll let you tell your story a little bit about why you decided to make that decision. I know because you went to Bestier and you got that idea in your head that you could do something like that, but still to pursue it and all the other things. So I'm done talking, you talk now. <laughs> uh, I was just thinking, were you going to talk about my A1C and how it was better than yours? Uh, no, <laughs> but you, but you can, but please do. Yeah. I love that. Tell, do tell. Um, just so I have a, I mean, in, in my teen years, I, I did struggle a bit with the management of my diabetes, but since I was around maybe 19 or 20, I did start to take really good care of myself. Um, do you know, you might know the answer to this because I'm actually questioning this right now. Do you know when a continuous glucose monitor was really introduced to the public for regular use of anybody being able to get it? I feel like it's pretty recent. It is. So I think the first one came out in 1993, if I'm not mistaken. But the ones that we see commonly used today, um, 
was introduced in like 2003. So the advancements in technology, I mean, 2003 is not that long ago in terms of medical speak and the ability to have a continuous glucose monitor to be able to monitor your sugars throughout because we know that there can be spikes just based on a level of stress mm-hmm. um, has really drastically changed the ability for type one and type two diabetics to take care of themselves. Yes, yes. And I think- But, like- Lindsay, but Lindsay, that's been for 20 years. I know, but I'm just saying that, that, that I know that even with people that are just recently diagnosed to get insurance to cover these things is a very big feat. So in order like for us to kind of filter it into mainstream, I think it's probably been within the last 10 years that's been more readily available. Yeah, definitely. It's yeah. still really expensive, um, but it is a lot uh, more available to people. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, going back to what you were saying, doctors too, back in the seventies, I mean, we still kind of hold that medical um, model for type one diabetics and pregnancy. Nothing's really changed that much. And in the seventies, which is like 50 years ago, I mean, women uh, um, didn't, we didn't have at home glucometers till like 1985, I think. So women were still going to their doctor's office or the hospital to test their blood sugars, or they were doing it in their urine, which is wildly inaccurate. Um, so, so much has changed in our ability to ma- uh, better manage our, our blood sugars and our diabetes. And I think that first I should say that I don't think every type one diabetic woman is a great candidate for a home birth. Like you really need to be comfortable with managing your own blood sugars. And what does that kind of look like? It means like changing your ratios, figuring out the best insulin dose for you, being comfortable with making changes every day or every other day and having just a lot of of flexibility and confidence in doing that. Because if you need to work with a doctor or you need your doctor's approval for everything, it's it might be really challenging for you to have a home birth because you need good blood sugars and you need to be able to be very independent with your thinking and um, decision-making in that. I think that's a really, really bold statement to make, which comes back to having our own autonomy with what we do with our bodies and us being the total experts of care. So I echo what Gina is saying with saying that it is not a great idea for every type one diabetic to have a home birth. It is a good idea for somebody that is empowered within their own bodies and know that they don't need permission from a medical authority to change things based on how they're feeling and what's being shown with their continuous glucose monitor. That is huge. You have to take responsibility for your healthcare for this to even be a slight consideration. And I mean, just a lot of people are, are lazy these days. They do like to depend on their doctors and they do like, you know, they're excited to get induced and they're excited for the, maybe even the, the scheduled cesarean. So there's like that whole other people, right? But um, as like a, a type one diabetic that really wanted a home birth, I, I really had to work really, really hard at my blood sugars. And I had a lot of confidence in doing that. And I really educated myself a lot beforehand to just not be surprised by all the crazy things that occur during pregnancy and type one diabetes and the massive amount of insulin resistance that you get, especially, you know, from 28 weeks to 36 weeks. I mean, you're triple to quadrupling the amount of insulin that you take preconception, which is nuts. I mean, for instance, I would take two units for an apple before I was pregnant. And then in my third trimester, I would dose maybe seven or eight units for an apple. So these things are just really intense and really crazy, but it's just what happens. And Gina, uh, is that true? Is that true for, for all, all, 
all diabetics um, have this massive insulin resistance increase in the third trimester, or is it is it variable? Is that variable also? I think yeah, there's definitely variability to that, but there well, there's ways to mitigate it too, right? Like how much weight have you gained, or had, or where did you, what were you obese to begin with? Do you um, exercise if at all? So there's little things like that, but for the most part, you will see just a lot of insulin resistance. And I would say, as a practitioner, also um, having a having a client who's compliant is is key. I mean, if if the if somebody wants a home birth and they're not going to take responsibility for their part of the of the uh, equation, then that's not a good fit for for either person. So it, it does require special people like you, like you, Gina, and then having a midwife like Lindsay who's really willing to to take that on. Because again, even though I was involved, Lindsay, uh, well, it was, I mean, technically, Gina, what became my client? I mean, is that how we did it? Legally, she became your client uh, within the state of California because we do have these, you know, our our laws have specifications with what we can and can't do, but that leaves a lot of gray area for women that are probably healthier than the majority of people coming in seeking home birth. Uh, I mean, you know, Gina was an, an expert in this field and how could I deny her um, the ability to do something with her body that she wanted to do just because of a law that the, the state of California said. And so- you know, that's where Stu always gets to step in and, and we get to find our, our way through the system. But um, it's it's an interesting place to be because for the majority of, of midwives that don't either A, have experience with this or B, have access to somebody like you or Dr. Flores um, or even Dr. Uh, Nathan, like, you know, it's it's really challenging and difficult to navigate your way through the system. Yeah, it just doesn't seem really fair. You got a you got a text message today, which I'm going to read. Yeah, I can read it for you. Okay, it says, "Hey, a, a midwife in Texas." Yeah, this is from a midwife in Texas. Hey, do you have any advice for a type one diabetic inquiring about home birth? I know type one diabetic really well because my daughter has it, but I have never cared for one in pregnancy. She plans to see an MFM as well. Uh, consulting with her today, but sounds very controlled and sounds like a great diet, exercise. Etc. Is there anything I need to watch for otherwise? She can have a pump during labor, correct? Correct. Mm -hmm. I don't see why not. I reached out to to somebody to pick her brain as well. Somebody, uh, one of your colleagues, I suspect. Um, so, Gina, um, what if would you say? Yeah. She can find uh, an MFM willing to work with her, knowing that she's going to have a uh, home birth. Good luck. Yeah. Yeah. Like well, that's that. That was a big thing that stuck out to me too. Is that that MFM? It's really here's an interesting side note about MFMs. Okay. And the way and the way the uh, MFMs have sort of taken over obstetrics, because when I first started in practice, MFMs were consultants, and they consulted for the OB. And if I sent somebody to an MFM, the MFM gave me their opinion. And then I referred that on to the client, yeah. whether I wanted to take their opinion or not. Somewhere along the way, that changed. And MFM started to give the clients their opinion. Mm -hmm. And essentially, that put the OB on the outside looking in because the OB didn't have the guts or the authority to override or a midwife didn't have, was afraid to override what the MFM had told the patient, but the MFM wasn't supposed to tell the patient that. 
The MFM is supposed to tell them the, the, the doctor, the referring doctor, what's going on. And if we could get back to that, where the MFM is the consultant of the obstetrician and not the cons- and not the n- new primary caregiver to the to the pregnant woman. But it's a it's a it that you know, I just it just occurred to me, and it occurred to me because of something that my friend Milo Chavira, we I think you guys know him too. Obviously, we all do. Um he said on a podcast, uh, I think it was the evidence-based birth podcast where he talked about breach delivery. And he said something really interesting. He said that if you're an internist, general internist, and you have somebody who has angina or needs a, a what do you call it, echocardiogram or a, what do you call it, where you put dye in, whatever, the angiogram, if it needs an angiogram, you refer them to a cardiologist and the cardiologist gives an opinion. And if you have a, uh, if you're a general internist or, or family practitioner and you have somebody who has Crohn's disease, you refer them to a gastroenterologist. Mm-hmm. But if you're an obstetrician and you have somebody who's got breach or twins, you don't refer them to somebody who's a specialist in breach or twins. You take care of them yourself anyway. Other specialties know when they need to refer people out to somebody who's a specialist. Obstetrics is is, is sort of all backwards and screwed up. Because obstetricians should be like internists. A general internist is not going to be somebody who's going to take care of somebody who's had a heart attack. For the most part, they're going to call in a cardiologist. But in obstetrics, they, because, cardio, because general internists don't know that as well as a cardiologist does. But in obstetrics, they don't. They don't refer you to somebody who's a specialist in breach delivery or twin delivery. And they just continue to take care of it themselves. And then they mismanage it for the most part. So getting back to my point about, you know, when uh, when uh, somebody who's doing something outside the norm, like Gina, you did, um, and you go and you have to see an MFM because it's important to get a, a consultant or an ultrasound or whatever else uh, to work in collaboration with them. We need to like reclaim our turf and say to these MFMs, you know, I'm sending her to you. I would like you to call me before you offer her your opinion because you, because I'm using you as a consultant. It's a, you know, funny how I had forgotten all about that for years. What do you, I mean, bliss, what do you think about that? Um, I've had similar experiences here um, with the MFM giving recommendations that would not necessarily be my recommendations. So take it with a grain of salt, but I agree with you. It would be really, it would be really lovely if that collaboration, you know, could happen prior to giving the client conflicting information, because we know that that can be really hard for the pregnant person to be like, now I don't know what feels right. So the more that we work together as a team to come up with um, recommendations that work for everybody, that everybody feels comfortable with, the the better I think the experience is for, for the mom. I, doctors used to call other doctors. I just saw I just saw Mrs. Jones, and here's what I think. Now it's all dictated, often prefabbed, uh, cut and paste uh, reports where they'll just add in a couple of things that are different because if you look at the reports from ultrasounds it's that's like all they're all the same 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, all the precautions are the same, all the disclosures are the same, all the consenting is the same, and they just add in a little bit. But they, but often they don't call the referring physician anymore. Mm-hmm. It's disappeared. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I have a good, I have a good relationship with mine. She texts me after every, after seeing every client. And, and, and I do talk to her openly about what I feel like I need as the provider. So I think that's important. But a lot of doctors don't even want to know. They're abdicating their responsibility. They're happy to send it to the MFM. Yeah. For many different reasons that they, that no longer it's no longer their responsibility. Cuz mm-hmm. now the MFM is taking over and all I'll do is catch the baby and you know submit the bill and all that stuff, but I don't have to make those decisions. Mm-hmm. And when they took away the other thing they did was when when I was trained, we were trained to manage a a, a woman with diabetes. Obstetrician should be trained in that, whether it's gestational diabetes or type one diabetes. But we don't. But obstetricians, insurance companies don't pay obstetricians to do that. It's part of your global fee. So why would I take care of somebody's diabetes? I might as well send them to an internist or a endocrinologist or or MFM to do that because they get paid for the time. But I, as the OB, don't get paid. Again, another flaw. I mean, there's. There's so much wrong with uh, with the way our system is set up, but this yeah. is one of the, this is one of those things. So sorry. Are we gonna Are we gonna hear a birth story? Yep. Okay, good. <laughs> one or two. I think I think both need to be heard. So well, I I, yeah. I think that the first one was so amazing because it was you as a first time mom and you were stepping in from um, this maiden maiden of a woman that had really taken all assertion of your body and your healthcare and to watch you transform throughout the day. You know, like we said earlier, it was Stu's birthday and they have this beautiful house with this pool and it was summertime and we were all just kind of hanging out. And, um, you know, tell, tell your perception of, of the end of that. Um, yeah, I mean, I got to be home and have a baby in my bed, which was, the most wild experience ever. Um, but I do want to say something that that is important. Um, Dr. Stu, you told me to expect a high blood sugar during um, labor mm-hmm. and that my blood sugars would shoot up. But in books that I had read and from stories that I had heard from other um, type one diabetics is that their blood sugar went down. And this made more sense to me because you think of exercising and adrenaline, you know, the catecholamines, epinephrine and norepinephrine, just like causing a bunch of glucose dump from your liver. So I was like, that's what's going to happen to me. I don't really know what Dr. Stu is talking about. So what I actually did when I was going through that hard, hard labor and those contractions is I turned off my basal settings. So I wasn't getting any insulin. And sure enough, my blood sugar shot up to 247 Mm -hmm. during um, pushing. pushing. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the highest blood sugars I'd had that entire pregnancy. And it was so stubborn. I mean, I was taking corrections, I think three or four times um, in between contractions and it just wasn't coming down. Um, fortunately, my baby was born with a uh, a normal blood sugar. It was in the eighties or the nineties. Mm-hmm. And um, we did repeat testing and there were some lows, but that's all pretty physiologic, normal things to happen. Um, Anyways, so yeah, I got to have that baby at home and it was just a magical experience, truly. So let me ask you about that. So, so the, your blood sugar did go up. Mm -hmm. It really did. But you didn't think, you thought paradoxically it should have gone down. 
Yeah, because I thought the muscles from the contractions were going to be taking up that glucose. You know, that made more sense to me, just like with exercise, how a lot of aerobic exercise makes your blood sugar go down. Um, what, is, what, is, what does cortisol do to your blood sugar, though? Yeah, it shoots it up. Yeah. And I think there's, you know, when you're, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on. And the only yeah. reason I said that is partly because I I'd read a little bit about it, but because I'd had a diabetic uh, that either that year or the year before whose blood sugar did the same thing. Yeah. Went, went up. She didn't go as high as you did, but it went up. But it, but yeah. it even went up to 240. We were able to start to bring it back down again. We didn't say, oh my God, we got to get, get, get in the car, go call an ambulance, go to the hospital. No. And we were prepared if the baby was going to end up seeing that high blood sugar and then it would bottom out. We were prepared for that. But I, but as you said, that never happened, right? No. No. And um, recently, um, Dr. Stu and I collaborated on a type one diabetic mom as well. And that was my experience during labor. It was, um, she was on the low side and then during pushing it was elevated. So that's, you could be so she got up. What'd you say? 165. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Which is not 240, but it was the highest that she had been in three days. So mm -hmm. And for my second birth at home, I didn't mess with my basal settings. I just kept them the same. And then during the pushing, I started rising up, creeping up. 153 is where I got. I did two corrections in between contractions. And I kind of floated there for a while and normalized. But um, now, now, mind you, her second baby was a precipitous birth that I didn't even make it to. <laughs> And she still was able to adjust. <laughs> she is, well, I guess, I mean, she's the expert in her body. I wouldn't totally, be pump, you know, um, yeah. and her husband is as well. You know, the, like the partners of type one diabetics are well-versed in how to manage their partner's diabetes, because if it gets too low, they need to know what to do. If it gets too high, they need to know what to do. They're always watching those pumps. I've never seen more attentive partners in, in relationships than the, those of partners that are watching the blood sugars of our type one diabetics. And so, um, you know, the second birth was so amazing. And we, me, Stu, we all collaborated together throughout that pregnancy. And she had such a successful first birth that, um, you know, she, she texted me that day and was like, I think I'm in labor, but I don't really believe it. I don't believe it. And I was laughing. I was like, you know, like that, that's okay. I'm glad you don't believe it, but I'm sure I'll see you later tonight. And, um, her husband, who is one of the biggest hype man there is on the planet. Like he is the most charismatic, enthusiastic humans alive. Um, you know, he gets on the phone. He's like, Liz, Liz, G, G, G needs you. I think she needs you to come. And, and I was like, okay, that's fine. I'm on my way. And all of a sudden I hear in the background and I'm 30, 35 minutes away from her. I hear go, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, she's pushing. Yeah. <laughs> you know and, and, and Curtis and Curtis caught the baby. You, I mean, it was a group effort for there oh, was a okay. doula there and it yeah, was, our yeah. doula was there. She was helping. Uh, yeah. Our doula made it eight minutes before the arrival. Yeah. The head was already out. So it was wild. It was wild. It just, I'm so, I was so programmed for my first birth, you know, like the labor is going to be long. It's going to be hard. And I just didn't imagine that I was having like, I didn't even think I was pushing when I was pushing, mm -hmm. even though we had this conversation that second births are usually much faster. It, it's it's I was still just, one of disbelief. Yeah. Right? I was in disbelief the whole time. Yeah. Sounds like a typical second time mama, like it totally does. normal. That it sounds does. 
Yes. But, you know, one interesting thing that I think is good to point out about this birth is that um, her second baby's blood sugars dropped very low. Like they were to the point where the glucometer wasn't even reading. And yeah. we were at a place where it was like, okay, are we going to call an ambulance and transfer in? I got Stu on the phone. And the biggest piece of this is that she was acting totally normal. Had this not been a type one diabetic mom, I would never even have thought to test this baby's blood sugars because the baby was active, alert, nursing well, good tone, really good sucks. I mean, there were so many pieces to that, that we were like, I'm like, this baby's fine. So I think it was like five o'clock in the morning and I, you know, have Stu on the phone and, and, and he's like, but she's act, the baby's acting normal. And I said, yeah. So, so what we ended up doing is making our own sugar water at home. Um, and we mixed it with a colostrum base and, um, supplemented at the breast with that. And within what, 20 minutes. Yeah. I think how we, have we do it, did it over again? Or when we, if I want to have another baby, yeah. I don't think I'm, I'm going to be as crazy with the testing because I was just reading this review, which I feel like we all should read it, but it's the diagnosis and management of neonatal hypoglycemia. And, um, they're saying that you can have blood sugars. I think in hospital settings, they get, they take the baby away in the NICU if it's around 47 or below. Um, which is the worst thing that they can do. They should be managing these babies right. on the mall, skin, skin to skin, skin breast colostrum. Yes. Yeah. All of that. Um, but there are, they're like as low as 30. And then this one says 20 to 25 milligrams per deciliter, um, without signs of hypoglycemia. So there isn't really a number established. It's just that these hospitals go with that number 47. And I even have a couple friends who aren't type one diabetic and they have had their baby, um, whisked away from them, tested the blood sugar and admitted into the NICU with blood sugars, um, around the fifties or sixties. Which is because the baby, because the baby was over nine pounds or something, right? They automatically test in the hospital. 4,500 grams and under six pounds, they test automatically in the hospital. Yeah. 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 This is, this again, this is the algorithmic medicine system that, that they put in place. And they usually set the standards like at a, a level where they're going to have more transfers to the NICU than less. I mean, they do the same thing with Billy Rubens. But it's 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 what I call my even number rule or my 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 stupid the stupid even number rule because they never take a look at the actually the the patient. No, and that's what we were you know talking about on the phone at five o'clock in the morning. And I'm like that's telling me you're like your baby looks good. She looks good. Like, yes, you told me that, and I just said, well, the baby's not jittery. The baby's yeah, sucking not, not okay. If the baby's responsive, yeah. then There's no signs of hypoglycemia. Now, when when a non birthing professional is looking at the baby and you're looking for signs of hypoglycemia, it can be a little bit weird, I would say, because it's like, are the eyes rolling? Is it really tired and floppy? It's like all newborns kind of look like that. Like they're very sleepy. You know, not, they can't not unmedicated newborns. But you so. know what I mean? Yes. Like, <laughs> no, and not <laughs> not usually not usually in the first hour they don't. They for the first hour they're generally pretty alert. They're 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 looking around. They're they're taking in their new environment. Um, you know, I, I again, how often does a baby fall asleep on the uh, in the first hour? Not very often. Yeah. No. Right. A normal physiologic birth, not very often. Right. Yeah. But these again, they, again, we. <laughs> I, I I'm not. I don't want to keep patting ourselves on the back, but we take we we individualize our care. We yeah. take a look at the individual patient. Yeah. In this case, it's a baby, 
and we've decided that this baby, you know, if this if this baby was jittery and you did a blood sugar on it and it was 57, that's not good because yeah. there's because the baby's jittery. So you got to figure out why the baby's jittery. But if the baby but but again to be checking blood sugars, I mean, here's another question that's really interesting because nobody does it, but what is a what does a woman who's not a diabetic's blood sugar do when she's in labor? Yeah. We don't know. We don't know. And what is every newborn blood what is every single newborn's blood sugar from moms that aren't type 1 diabetic? Mm -hmm. Don't don't suggest that because that'll be a new pro <laughs> a, new, a new protocol in the hospital. They'll check every single baby. Look at there there are hospitals now that check every single baby for bilirubin at 12 hours. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, it's a money maker. I mean, of you, course. You numbers go up they fill their NICUs they make money they they rent their billy blankets out there's there's so much money to be made there's so much that they can bill for and then they set their they, they set their guidelines really low you know uh if they, you know they don't even follow you i'm not a big fan of the american academy of pediatrics but they have guidelines for what the uh, what billy rubin should be at tw uh, 12 hours 24 hours stuff like that and a lot of hospitals will set it lower than that because they want to err on the side of caution maybe um which is always a money maker uh, they, and they do that. They, 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 yeah. So I, I, I'm just like, I'm tickled about this last birth was, was, was fun for me because I heard when I heard that Lindsay wasn't even there, this is like, wow, this is great. <laughs> well, a, a diabetic. We were FaceTiming. We, were FaceTiming. we, we have some good FaceTime pictures. <laughs> yeah. But a uh, free, uh, you know, like a, a free birth, not purposeful, but a yeah. free birth type one diabetic. You know, yeah. it, it looks like we're not, as you said earlier on, Lindsay and Gina, you said, this is not for every diabetic who can do this, but, but these are options that are not even uh, open to discussion in the, in the medical model. Yeah. And because, because again, to beat my, my, the thing that I say all the time that all that matters to them is a live baby in the bassinet is th the mother's psyche doesn't really matter to them. No, they don't care. Right. And it's not that the individual nurse or doctor doesn't care. It's that the system doesn't allow them the the freedom to care. That's well, the real problem. Another important point I did I did want to talk about was um it's not usual or typical. It's quite rare actually for a type one diabetic to go past 37 to 38 weeks. And oh, in the medical in the medical hospital model. Yeah, they won't let you. Yes. And with my first baby, I was 41 weeks and five days. So I just, that's right. That's that. right. And the stillbirth rate is not related to the fact that you're a diabetic. The stillbirth rate is related to how well you're controlled and what your hemoglobin A1C was. You, you sent me something this morning that you said you really don't see a rise in the adverse outcomes until you get a hemoglobin A1C above 10. Which is so high. I mean, yeah. which is really high. That is, actually, that's, that uncontrolled that's an average of of two hundred and forty. Yeah, I mean, I I I, I did some uh, like little research here. I just want to go through some stuff because there's some really interesting stuff. Um, that the the hemoglobin A one C when it when it was um below six, there's really no difference in outcomes to, that are that statistically significant and then it gradually rises until it, and then it shoots up it really takes off when you get around 10 but a hemoglobin a1c of 10 is not if, like that's something that would make all of us nervous mm -hmm. um what was your hemoglobin a1c in in with carmen do you remember first got pregnant i haven't you said it was better than mine 
So um, for the past 10 years, I haven't had an A1C above six. So when I got pregnant with Carmen, I think I was like a 5.7 maybe. Yeah, maybe a five. I think I was like, yeah, 5.7, let's say. But I got down to 4.8. Which is which is crazy. I mean, there's not many people that have hemoglobin A1Cs of 4.8. The women that I've talked to or worked with with type 1 diabetes and being pregnant, this is the best care that they've ever been able to achieve in their in their history of diabetes. I mean, you just, it becomes... So you become obsessed with these perfect blood sugars because you're, you know, you're you're pregnant. Yeah, because you're pregnant. Bliss, what is Element? L-M-N-T. It's an amazing sponsor, first of all. We love them so much. But it's a tasty electrolyte drink with all of the good stuff and none of the BS, like... Us. That's right. (laughs) I taught you well. (laughs) It is. It's got a lot of uh, good salts in it and uh, no sugar. I even uh, took a little notes here and they have um, a thousand milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium and 60 milligrams of magnesium, which helps maintain fluid balance, regulates your blood pressure and supports muscle function, mood and bone health. Which is great for pregnant mamas, breastfeeding moms, and absolutely for birth workers. So make sure that you have some in your in your birth bag if you need it or if your clients do in labor. For sure. Electrolyte deficiency or imbalances can cause like headache, cramps, fatigue, and weakness, especially in the birthing world. You know, a long time when we, before what I used to do it, but you still do. <laughs> you have a lot <laughs> of sleep after being up all night and snacking on like not such good food sometimes. And I carry it with me whenever I travel and I add it to my water, like in the hotel room and stuff. And I spent a lot of time recently in hotel rooms. It's a great sponsor and they've, They've been doing really well, and I'm really proud to be um, supporting them. They have multiple flavors. Your uh, favorite is raspberry, right? Raspberry is mine, and yours is mango chili. Yeah. But I, I do have I do have some sad news. Aww. So long, old friend, to lemon habanero. Oh, man. They discontinued it? So they could concentrate on citrus salt, raspberry salt, orange salt, raw unflavored, mango chili, chocolate salt, and watermelon salt. Maybe they're going to come out with some new stuff too. But I trust (laughs) Elements. I trust that uh, they've done a deep dive into the research. They put their whole soul into it. We would like you to go to drink element. That's drinklmnt.com backslash birthing instincts, all one word. And when you do that, you'll get a free sample pack with your every order. Go do it. Go do it. Um, I just have a a, a couple questions about that you may not be able to answer, but Gina, you, you're so well-versed in diabetes, obviously, and you're a naturopathic doctor besides. So in 1958, the percent of, of, of the U.S. population that had diabetes was, be, was less than 1%. Um, if I'm looking at that correctly. Actually, no, it was like, it was like 4% or something like 3 or 4%. And in 2009, it was over 20%. Not necessarily type 1, but diabetics altogether. Do you have any thoughts on that? I have a lot of thoughts on that, but that could be an entire other podcast. Give well, us your get, top thoughts. Yeah, give us your top thoughts. You have so much wisdom, my love. Um, I don't know what words I can and cannot say on here, but... Anything, anything. Okay. 
Um, you can no. you can say fuck. <laughs> okay. What about the V word? You can oh, say vaccines. It. Oh, sure. You can say vaccines. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, there there's vaccines. I think for sure have a lot to do with that. Um, but there's environmental toxins. There's a lot of other theories like cow's milk. Um, some kind of diseased chicken and beef and consuming that. So with the cow's milk hypothesis, it's it's that the the protein in the milk is very similar to the beta cells of the pancreas. And so your immune system st starts to attack that thinking that it's the cow's milk. And so then you get this autoimmune reaction happening and you get um, type one diabetes. Would so, it be the same for raw? I don't think so, but I know that there are a lot of sensitive individuals to cow's milk. Mm -hmm. So with that, then there's the lack of vitamin D hypothesis. There's the gluten hypothesis. So there's a lot of, I mean, who knows? We still don't know why this happens. Um, I mean, it's an autoimmune disease that our body is attacking itself. And so, um, you know, we've moved through a client together that, you know, we were trying to, to rule out um, type one diabetes together with one of my clients. And right. I've, I'm now pulling Gina in as a consultant with all of my high blood sugars and anybody that needs um, somebody to be a really good advocate for um managing their insulin and blood sugars through through nutrition and you know obviously as midwives we are trained our one of our biggest pieces of training is nutrition but to have somebody else that i can pull in as a consultant that's an expert in this has just been so incredible for my practice and so um it's it's just really diving through and figuring out like what is attacking what is causing this inflammation within the body system um i i, I know that there's so many type one diabetic families with young kids that wish we had more answers. And, and as an adult too, with a yeah. type one diabetic diagnosis your whole life, I'm sure it's the same thing, but yeah. So what we know is that this like inflammation and this autoimmunity, these reactions that start taking place are actually happening long before the diagnosis happens. So there's something triggering this reaction and we don't quite know what it is. Um, but usually there's this like viral illness that happens and then boom, the child or the adult gets diagnosed. What's really interesting is this used to be called juvenile di uh, diabetes. And now, I mean, they don't even call it that anymore mm -hmm. because people are getting diagnosed later in life. Um, and in the more recent years, a lot of people are getting diagnosed after COVID. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people have been diagnosed after getting those things. And um, it's just... I mean, we know that the research shows that the spike proteins of COVID are sitting in the pancreas. Like I've done a lot of my own research within my practice and I've been watching A1Cs post COVID within my clients just, just for fun. And all of their A1Cs are incredibly spiked compared to what the A1Cs were that I drew earlier on in pregnancy. So, so these spike proteins are definitely causing havoc within our immune systems and causing some sort of autoimmune reaction. Um, I love your observation of when you were diagnosed, what, what, what happened to you prior to that happening? Yeah, there's a lot of family stuff. Well, and just, you know, you had, you had, there was, oh yeah, this is actually a really interesting story. So I lived in this little neighborhood where I grew up and there was, um, there was like four of us in the whole community, in the whole, my whole school that had type one diabetes. And we all lived within half a mile from each other. 
I just think that's crazy. <laughs> well, it's not so crazy. And I'll tell you, I've been doing a deep dive into heavy metals. Um, recently, I've been reading a lot of books. We talked about it on a previous podcast. But one of the interesting theories is, and, and why maybe the, there's more um, diabetes appearing now after the inflammation occurring from the spike protein and also just from the, the from um, the childhood vaccine schedule in general is and also because of the environment uh, what they're spraying in the atmosphere what they're what you're getting in your foods um you know aluminum and and barium and and mercury and arsenic and all these things and lead and these are all documented within government websites i mean like you know we say these things and people are like what are you talking about it's like no look at the look at the gov websites that talk about what they're spraying you know it's it's there it's so potent within our air quality and and the way it, the way that the theory that it works is is that is that when you get exposed to these things, whether it's through vaccine or something else, um, your body doesn't eliminate these heavy metals. They, they sit in your body and they may form little granulomas, or you may, or they may be gobbled up by white cells, and the white cells are carrying it around. They can't digest it, but they but at least they sequester it. Problem is, is like you said, you get a viral illness, and maybe it affect maybe you get inflammation of your pancreas. And your body tells it, well, you've got inflammation on pancreas. We better send some uh, so some soldiers there. Who are the soldiers? They're the white cells in the body. So the white cells go to this area, and what are they carrying? Heavy metals. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was no such thing as, as something like Crohn's disease 70 or 80 years ago. Yeah. And now ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, they're, they're, they're fairly common. A lot yeah. of these autoimmune disorders... And, and, you know, again, there's a lot of things in the environment. It's hard to say correlation and causation, blah, blah, blah. But you can't deny the fact that that we're in, we're inundating our children with heavy metals. And when we were kids, we didn't we got them. We were naive. We got them, but we didn't know that they were bad. But now we know they're bad and they're still giving them. And that's that that's that's a real issue. Um, and I try we try to, I try to bring messages to this. I try to do some reels and stuff on this. We just did one recently on Zika virus uh, for our Patreon group uh, where I talked about that maybe it was the aluminum and the DPT shot that caused these problems and not the Zika virus itself. And, and when you start to take a deep dive in this, you really start to see that there's been a lot of uh, gaslighting and uh, errors made in the medical community. And by errors, I mean, in sort of because the errors always end up in chronic diseases, which then require pharmaceutical products for the rest of your life. And you're a lifelong customer. Correct. Diabetes is extremely expensive. The, what's the? This is actually a very interesting statistic because I have actually been appalled at the cost of what insulin is. And insulin should be one of the cheapest medications because it is 100% life-saving. And over the last, I think you told me it went up 350% over the last three years. I think Trump was still in office. So well, what what went up? I'm sorry. Cost insulin. insulin. Oh, the cost of insulin. Yeah. I mean, that's a staggering number. And for those that don't have the ability to have some sort of insurance that covers the that absorbs the basic cost of that, I mean, that that would completely take incomes, you know, and I have to say, I just, I'm just returning from um, a three week uh, uh, trip to Europe. And um, we talk about how all of this inflammation is happening. And I know that it's a worldwide, but the United States specifically is where we're at. We have about a 70% obesity rate and we have staggering conditions with everybody having some sort of chronic disease. 
it is so obvious walking through the streets of Europe to see that that is not happening there. I know it might be happening in smaller numbers, but if you, it, it's eye-opening. You look at it and you're like, holy shit, this is a healthy nation. You know, like walking through the streets of, of Sweden and Stockholm, it's like the, you know, the obesity population there is maybe 5%. And I promise you that they're eating, they're not sitting there and counting their carbs and they're not, they're all on our ketogenic diets or anything like that. You know, they're active. I was doing 17,000 steps a day. I wasn't having these inflammatory foods that were attacking my body. It's the best I felt in the last year. And I get home and you're like, something's wrong here. Stepping off the plane and the difference of the air quality, something's wrong here. So we as a population, especially us as Americans, those of us that are listening to this in the United States, have to start asking these questions. We have to stop um, this this process of what's causing all of these autoimmune conditions, including type 1 diabetes, and start asking the questions and start making choices that are going to improve the outcomes, not just for ourselves, but for all future generations. Absolutely. If they had the cure, would they give it to us? Yeah, with so many things. (laughs) No, no. And they're not, I don't know that they're even looking. Yeah, they're not. Um, So speaking of, go go ahead, Bliss. I I wanted to go back and ask some specific questions about type one diabetes and pregnancy. Um, So can you tell us, Stu, um, what are the things that we would be looking for? Um, what, uh, how would we manage? I mean, obviously, as we talked about in the beginning, most of the responsibility to manage your numbers is going to go to the mom, unless this is a mom who doesn't feel comfortable with that. And then she's going to need additional support and home birth is probably not appropriate for her anyways. But if someone is you know, collaborating with the doctor and and working with a type one diabetic to have a community-based birth, what are some of the additional things besides um, the mom's responsibility to manage her numbers as providers that we should be looking for? Any additional testing, anything that would be um, something that we would be doing that's different than any other pregnant mom? I'd like to say the first thing that we, we is to do is to come at it without so much anxiety. Um, in the medical community, that would be uh, like the number one thing. Because if the doctors are anxious, the patients become anxious. And then anxiety leads to um, problems um, and and more testing. Um, Some basic things, again, if you have a diabetic that's in really good control um, and is really taking care of herself and is really compliant, I'm not sure that you really have to do too much extra that you wouldn't do otherwise. I mean, you might do, you might check a hemoglobin A1C once in a while to do that. And maybe that, maybe you don't even need to do that. But most of the continuous glucose monitors give them an A1C average within their apps anyway. So it's sometimes. See there. Right. So, I mean, so you're following that very, very closely. And again, we're talking about the ones that have the access to these sorts of things. Um, if you don't, if you're, if you, if you don't have access to them, if your sugar's out of control, yeah, then you need closer surveillance. You need more ultrasounds to watch for either uh, macrosomia or growth restriction. A true a true um, type 1 diabetic that's been diabetic for a long time can have vascular problems. And if they have vascular problems, they may have problems with blood flow through, to the, through their uterine arteries, to the placenta, and they may have a more uh, a grungy placenta, and they may have more likely to have growth-restricted baby. Gestational diabetes, you're more likely to see macrosomic babies. Um, but again, is macrosomia necessarily a bad, uh, you know, a terrible thing? It depends. And I would 
I want to point out too, that our gestational diabetics are not going to be experts in their blood sugars like type one diabetics are. I would much rather at this point with what I've seen, people consult me about type one diabetes, bring a type one diabetic in my practice, opposed to having to teach somebody that's newly diagnosed with how to manage their sugars because it's new to them or type one diabetics. I mean, it's usually been a few years and they have their sugars just under control. Well, let me ask you both. Uh, you're, you're, all, you're a naturopathic doctor, two midwives. Let me ask you a question. How often do you see somebody who's in the home birth world get gestational diabetes? Rare. It's very rare. Why? In my, in my practice, um, I've had one woman that I have not been able to control with nutrition. But why uh, do you see such a low rate in your practice? I think it's because we're attracting the cream of the crop. We're attracting healthy, low-risk women that are seeking something that's different outside of the Western medical care. They're not looking for somebody to come in and dictate their care. They're seeking an alternative care where they've already done the work and they're healthy. Right. And we and do a lot of preventative work with them with nutrition. And and um, if we are seeing something that is borderline, then we're digging in and working harder to help them understand what's happening inside of their body with diet diaries and monitoring their glucose at home. We're, we're encouraging people to be active. So there, I think that there's a lot that goes with that. Um, yeah. A lot of times the big scare with diabetics is that you're going to have a stillbirth. Mm -hmm. This is sort of the big scare. And again, the stillbirth, like with cholestasis, is related to uh, often to the degree of control that you have or not. Again, if you have a uh, hemoglobin A1C of 4.8 or whatever Gina's was, your risk of stillbirth isn't really any greater than any other woman who's not diabetic. Um, they're in the, there's, there's a small number. There's never, it's a never zero risk. There's always a potential risk for that. But surveillance makes, you know, makes some sense. It, it's sort of a compromise. It, it, sometimes it's reassuring for the mother to have surveillance. Sometimes it's frightening because then she's got to go in all the time and she's worried. And it really depends on the nature of who's doing the surveilling too. Because if you have a maternal fetal medicine doctor who's cool, like our friend Shavira, or your your contact up in Santa Barbara Bliss, uh, Lindsay, you probably have some people that you that you know, um, then they're not going to be throwing fear at them. But every story I get in my inbox talks about, you know, that sort of thing. As a matter of fact, it would be really good time if we if you bear with me. I have one one more letter. Yeah. Okay, but I have two questions before you do that. Okay. So are you you're saying additional surveillance um in the later part of pregnancy? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yes. Potentially, right? If you have a mom with a, he a hemoglobin A1C of a 4.8, would you require additional surveillance? I wouldn't. Yeah. But the yeah. medical model treats all diabetics the same. Right. Yep. Yeah. So they they mitigate out that individualized care. And they won't let you go past 38 weeks. Um, and how would we diagnose my macrosomia? You mean other than hands-on? It's an ultrasound. Ultrasound is what the, what's used to diagnose it. The definition yeah. of macrosomia varies, just like the definition of growth restriction varies. I mean, some people say it's over four thousand grams. Other people say it's over forty-five hundred grams. But again, these numbers are, are are you know they don't make a lot of sense because estimated fetal weight by ultrasound has so much error. Yeah. Especially and Lindsay, do you have a vote on that? Like how you would know if, if you had a baby that was macrosomic? 
So I am very confident in my palpation skills. Um, I am usually down to a couple ounces with when I'm palpating a belly and feeling. Um, and but there, I you know I have an amazing ultrasound tech that's in my office, and so if the mom is wanting any further, you know, it goes back to saying what does the mom want? Whatever we want and what the mom wants might be two different things. We have to go back to what she feels most comfortable with. I think you had one biophysical profile ultrasound with a, a, a weight estimate at what, 37, 38 weeks with, with Paula. Yeah. And that was Curtis. My husband really wanted one. Yeah. So, you know, it's, 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 I wasn't concerned about the weight of the baby. You both tell, tell the listeners what the weight of both of your babies were. Um, seven pounds, nine ounces for my first, which was almost two weeks late and eight pounds, nine ounces was my second. Yeah. Which is, which wouldn't concern me. I mean, I would see that diabetic mom, you know, those are normal, no more weights for, for healthy babies. Yeah. But so is nine and a half pounds, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, how do you determine what's macrosomic when we see, you know, outside of the hospital, we see babies eight, nine, 10 pounds, and they're with no diabetes Mm -hmm. in, in the yeah, it's hard. that's a that's a very gray area question. I mean, the biggest baby in my practice was twelve pounds six ounces. Wow! Right. And, um, that you know that baby came out. It needed a little shimmy out, but it wasn't any sort of bad shoulder dystocia. So, who determines what the mom is capable of passing through her pelvis? I don't. You know, they we have pelvimetry kits and all of that, but in my personal opinion, it's all bullshit. It needs to be done by allowing a you know, a trial of labor, a trial of a vaginal birth. And who are we to determine what's capable and what what a woman isn't capable of? Right, right. It's so nice for me to hear this coming out of other mouths. It's great. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So Stu, I have a question for you. I'm shocked. What is it? (laughs) (laughs) What is one thing in a woman's pregnancy that she can control? Because so much is out of our control. Uh, Her nutrition? That's right. And we are so excited to be partnered with such an amazing company as needed because they have focused on pregnancy, postpartum as being some of the most nutritionally demanding time in a woman's life. And it can be influenced by her nutrition status. So they support women during this time with all kinds of amazing products. Their line just has so many options. So make sure and check them all out. But Stu's going to tell us a little bit about um, their immune support because it's turning fall and we need that a little bit more right now during this time. Yeah, Needed has an immune support, uh, which is a popular choice right now with all the back to school germs and heading into the winter when we all tend to get sick more frequently. And the people ask sometimes, well, if I'm pregnant, can I take this product? And of course, yes, it was formulated uh, for pregnant mamas in mind. So it's uh, recommended and safe in pregnancy. Support is intended to complement, not replace other products that they offer as well. So it's just one of those things that you add to your, you know, your prenatal vitamins, your probiotic, your maybe your stress support, your sleep and relaxation support. But Bliss, I wanted to talk about something else today. Don't forget the men. That's right. We love the men. Right. So they have a sperm support, uh, men's pre and probiotic. And they say men play a critical role in conception and healthy pregnancies. I, I, I imagine that's true. <laughs> <laughs> they do. <laughs> yeah. 
Preconception health can significantly impact both fertility outcomes and also the health of their future children. Needed's Men Fertility Plan is a must for couples trying to conceive to support the multiple components of fertility, including sperm health, gut health, optimal nutrient levels, and testosterone levels, which, by the way, are falling worldwide. So you can do this and it works. Why not? I trust Needed's products with my patients because they use scientifically studied ingredients and perform rigorous third-party testing. And unlike other products on the market, Needed designs their products from the ground up using the latest research and insights from men's fertility practitioners. So, you know, we are a woman's podcast mostly, but I don't want those dads to feel excluded. So head over to thisisneeded.com and use code BIRTHINGINSTINCTS for 20% off your one-time order. That's right. Thanks, Needed. Okay, you had a letter, Stu. Thanks for well, yeah, be, be, before before I read this letter, I just want to do one thing. Um, I you know everybody's taught that they're supposed to have this fifty gram glucola test at twenty eight weeks, this sugar test, and you know, you know I've I, never done that once, Stu, ever in my practice. Me neither. No, I know. No, I know. We're we're not talking about home birth. People. You guys have alternatives. You have yeah. one hour post. Uh, uh, post eating, you have the jelly bean thing. You have just checking your home sugars. You have doing a, a just an A one C. You have lots of different ways. You give people informed consent. They can choose what they want to do. But I just want to tell people listening that I looked it up on the internet. I looked up the ingredients in a fifty gram Coca-Cola. Thank you, Stu. Water, dextrose, which is a, a the source of it's from corn. Okay, which is modified corn, by the way. The yes. GMO. GMO, citric acid, natural flavoring, food starch modified, glycerol ester of wood rosin. I don't even know what that no is. No idea what that is. Yeah. <laughs> Rominated soybean oil, mm. FD and C yellow number six, <laughs> sodium hexametaphosphate, BHA, and 0.1% or 0.1% sodium benzoate so this sounds like a normal meal to me yeah <laughs> yeah if you buy your meals at if you buy your meals at the, the gas station snack shop yeah. this is what this is what you get so again this is what they're telling you to take and they're telling you it's innocuous and they're telling you you know it's standardized and blah 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 and yet you give it to a woman who weighs 120 pounds and give it to a woman who weighs 280 pounds and it's fasting no less Fasting. So you're doing this on a completely empty stomach. And, and most people don't drink 200 calories of sugar. 50 grams of glucose is 200 calories of sugar. And they don't just do that in, in a matter of like 10, you know, eight minutes or six minutes or however fast you're supposed to drink that thing. And then it said all that stuff in it. So that's just another thing about the medical model that they don't give you informed consent about what's in it. Oh, it's just orange stuff and uh, water. Right. I mean, just, those ingredients are horrifying to me horrifying to me. you know like i avoid those at all costs for everything that we do within my family at least i can't i can't imagine just giving this to all healthy pregnant women it's crazy now, to be honest there are probably some that are healthier there's the fresh test there's yes a, the fresh one yeah right. you can buy that online and it's it tastes like lemonade i think it's just cane sugar and some lemon flavoring um there's the the jelly bean test. I don't even know because I don't use those, but there's, a, I think it's 18 jelly beans or something like that. that it, you it's 28, but it's, it just depends on how many 
calories are in the jelly beans, each jelly bean, right? Exactly. But my tried and true, and I will, I will stand by this because I've had it work so many times is an A1C. If I get an A1C over 5.3 within my practice, I have a woman get a at home glucometer test. We do fastings for two weeks. We do uh, blood sugars an hour after they eat. I say two weeks, if blood sugars are good within the first week, we usually don't test past that. But I think an A1C is one of the most beneficial ways to, to, I don't want to use the word diagnose, but to manage blood sugars throughout a pregnancy. Yeah. And I do postprandial um, one hour after eating a normal meal and have them splurge with some kind of sugar, if that's a normal part of their diet, just so that we can see how their body is responding to how they normally eat. You know, what's your opinion? Uh, there's a lot to say on this subject, um, but the A1C test isn't isn't actually a perfect test. No. So there are ways to manipulate that, make it lower. If you're having a lot of hypoglycemia, um, you're going to have a lower A1C. So you could be shooting up to 40 and then 300 in a day and maybe having a lot of low blood sugars and you're going to have a low A1C, but you could still, I mean, you could be managing yourself really poorly. So it's just really not a perfect test. The If your patient is on a continuous glucose monitor, you can check their time in range. And that is actually a better um, way to assess their blood sugars. So the continuous glucose monitors are actually really interesting because there's a couple companies that have popped up over the last few years um, and you can get, they're readily available to the average consumer. You go on and you type in a couple things and a doctor approves your, your units and um, your, I should say your case. And they send you a continuous glucose monitor that's associated with an app. And I actually think it's fascinating. I've worn a continuous glucose monitor for about three months last year. And it was so interesting to see what my body did physiologically when I was driving to a birth at three o'clock in the morning, or if I was really tired and I had what I would normally eat when I got home from a birth and what my blood sugars would do if I was, you know, an hour post that. So, um, if anybody is interested in doing a deeper dive, the continuous glucose monitor is going to be the the best standard of care there is. It's the gold standard in terms of monitoring blood sugars. And like I said, it is very readily available to the public now at, at, you know, I think it was like $250 a month or something like that. So it's not cheap, but, um, in my opinion, it was worth it just to kind of gather interesting data on myself. Cause I think that stuff is so interesting. <laughs> I would never do that, but I love that you wanted to. <laughs> yeah. And you know what, I'm going to, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm going to skip the letter because the letter letters long and it was more about the glucose test that we just sort of talked about and, we, and you talked about different variations of doing it and, and what better ways to monitor and it was going to lead into that but there but th there's no point in doing that for the sake of time um i do i do believe that this that what gina said about hemoglobin a1c is uh, uh, maybe not being a good indicator for somebody who's sort of a brittle diabetic if that's even a term they use anymore where they're going up and down a lot you're smiling. So I don't know. Cause sometimes I use terms that we use 50 years ago or 30 years ago and, and they don't use them anymore. But in a, in a person who's not you know, normally diabetic, drawing a hemoglobin A1C would probably be a, a, a better indicator because they're not going to go from 40 to 300 and 40 to 300. You know, they're going to run what they run all day long. And if they're, you know, they might have higher fastings and higher postprandials, but they're going to talk, you're talking about 130 and 140, not not 300 and not 30. So um, it might be a re reasonable, as Lindsay said, a reasonable screening test for non-diabetic women rather than taking th that chemical concoction that I just read. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, I really quickly, I, I posted on um, our Instagram and I, I tagged you and it's Stu, um, if anybody had any questions and, and every, we answered all these questions, but I, I want to end with this with saying um, no questions, but thank you for doing this. I have two type one diabetic teens in my life and this information will be so helpful. And I, I just, that. like, that's just such a beautiful message to echo across because there is not anybody that is talking about this whatsoever. And I just feel that this conversation that we just had was so important. And I know it probably is triggering for a lot of people because the medical data around it hasn't changed from the seventies. And we're so set in this standard of care, but um, this is our invitation to ask more questions and to bring the authority back to ourselves and um, to make differences. Because if someone is really, you know, set on having a home birth, then I feel like this is a very realistic option as long as they're controlling their, their lifestyle and their sugars uh, within normal range. And even if they're not considering a home birth, being informed about this stuff may enable you to tell your doctor who wants to do an amnio on you at 37 weeks and induce you at 38 weeks, or maybe they skip the amnio and just do it. Um, that Why? Ask the mm -hmm. questions. Why? Yeah. Well, because you could have a stillbirth. Well, can I really have a stillbirth if I'm really in good control and any more so than that woman sitting in that chair over there? And 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 again, ask the questions. Because there is something to be benefited about labor becoming uh, coming on its own, and and allowing nature's design to work as it's supposed to without this all this artificial interference, the oxytocin which leads to the epidural, and we've you know we beat that horse to death many times on the podcast, and then um, you know the difference in microbiome and the difference in bonding and the babies going to the NICU because they're infants of diabetic mothers. Why does my baby have to go to? And by the way, talk about these things prenatally with your OB, find out how they're going to, how they would like to manage you and find out if they can give you information as to why they want to do that. And if you, and there may be reasons why, and if they give you legitimate reasons that feel good to you, then, then that's great. And then you should follow their, their guideline, but don't just follow the guidelines because they're there. That's yeah. like the theme of our podcast. Yeah. yeah, you know, this conversation reminds me a lot, Stu, I don't remember what number it was, but we did an interview with a midwife and uh, a mom who had cystic fibrosis. And the conversation is really similar. This person really knew her care, knew um, her risks, and the midwife was willing to work with her and they had a beautiful delivery together. And so I think that that's the most important thing that, you know, I know Linz and I feel the same way about is like women deserve to have autonomy and the options to be treated like a mature adult that is there to make decisions and we're there just to support them. So um, it becomes difficult when, when we feel like licensure or the government is making those decisions for us. Um, but it's important for us to have options and to be able to choose for ourselves what feels right. Anything, so thank you for being on. Yeah. Anything else you'd like to add? Do I want to give a plug to naturopaths too. Yeah. Uh, you know, if, if you are looking for somebody to help you navigate through all of this stuff um, on a more natural, you know, you go to an endocrinologist, you go to an MFM, like these are all people that are based in the Western medical system. <laughs> And, and if you are looking for an alternative within that, you know, naturopaths are really well-versed in these things, especially if it's one that specializes in nutrition and diabetes, like they're out there. Um, so, you know, I really want to plug, you know, Gina who went through, it's rigorous. It's like, it's like medical school, you know? So 
um, you reach out to your local naturopaths and and use them, utilize them within these circumstances as well. Gina, do you take? A, are you practicing now? On a very limited when basis. I when I when I pull her into my practice. <laughs> do nat do most naturopaths take care of children as well? I want to um, a lot do. It's within their scope for sure. You know, they're they're set up to be basically family practice doctors. Because I think it's I think it's it would be a great alternative uh, for uh, babies and children than than standardized pediatrics. I mean, there's some there's some ex exceptional pediatricians out there but for the most part the rank and file are just uh, rubber stampers for the cdc and the american academy of pediatrics and the vaccine schedule and everything else that we sort of don't agree with but i've all often referred uh, we i have a friend who's a naturopathic doctor in santa monica who who went to bastier as well and i often refer her uh to my uh, some of the children that my when people ask me questions about that um, so that is an option for people to look into their community and, and see, and hopefully we're going to get more and more, um, practitioners who don't follow these archaic, uh, algorithmic, um, mindless, um, pattern of, of medicine that we, that we practice in this country to, to the detriment of most of us, because we're not doing well, uh, as a society health-wise. Bliss, it's time to talk about one of our favorite sponsors, BirthFit. Yeah, tell us all about it. Well, BirthFit is more than just a place where you can exercise. Just like us, they educate our professionals and the general population in the realm of women's health. They're industry leaders in preconception, prenatal, postpartum, and women's fitness. And they have a new program. Um, they have a course in becoming a BirthFit coach. Everything you need to know about BirthFit coach course, course is there on the BirthFit website. This course is the only holistic nervous system focused functioning, functional training certification for those coaching women inside the motherhood transition. That was a mouthful. <laughs> Why become a BirthFit coach? Well, it can fuel your passion. It can grow your business. It's work-life balance. Be your own boss. Set your own schedule and build a business around your values. Live on a mission. Join a community of coaches on a mission to change the lives of women all over the world. So they also, Bliss, have their great fitness programs. Why don't you tell us a little bit about those? Yeah, but that sounds amazing. I think if you guys are working with women to learn from BirthFit on how to integrate um, the body can be amazing. But if you're a mama and you are wanting to know how you can best support your body during pregnancy, this is a great place to go. They have a prenatal program, which is 30 days, um, no equipment needed. And then they have a postpartum package that starts with the lying in program. So, so often people ask me what they can do in those first few days when they're not really walking um, yet. And this is a great way to figure out how to start to get back into your body. Um, and then they have a whole postpartum program that is um, rehabilitating whether you had a C-section or a vaginal birth, this is a great foundation to getting back into training. So Stu has some great discount codes for you guys, but check them out. We are total fans of the work that they're doing. So, Yeah, and their website is very, very extensive. And so I suggest you go to birthfit.com and scroll through and look at their website. And if you want to sign up for some of the physical fitness courses, you uh, put in the code INSTINCT1 
for a discount off their prenatal course and put in the code INSTINCTS2 for a discount off their postpartum course. They have so much to offer. I hope you'll uh, support them because they support us. They're OB and midwife approved. Yep. So go check them out. Okay, let's get back to the show. So thank you, Gina. Thank you, Lindsay, for being on with us today. It was lovely to see you guys and what a what a provocative conversation we had. Um, I hope that you guys enjoy the rest of your day and Stu and I are going to jump over on Patreon and, and finish up for today. So thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Love you guys. Bye, guys. Love Bye. you too. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 